<coughs> Our reading for today is from Genesis 33, verses 18 through to uh, chapter 34, verses 31. After Jacob came from Padan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he bought from the sons of Hamor and the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. There he set up an altar and called it El Elohei Israel. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah, had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land, when Shechem, son of Hamor, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her. He took her and violated her. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father Hamor, Get me this girl as my wife. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. Then Shechem's father Hamor went out to talk with Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamor said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it and acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I will pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the girl as my wife. Because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will give our consent to you on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and and go. Their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who was the most honoured of his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said, because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of of their city to speak to their fellow townsmen. These men are friendly towards us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. But the men will consent to live with us as one only on the condition that our males be circumcised, as they themselves are. Won't their livestock, their property and all their other animals become ours? So let us give our consent to them and they will settle among us. 
All the men who went out of the city gate agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of the Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as blunder everything in the, in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and Perizzites the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? Okay. Full on. I'm going to pray. I ask that uh, God help us with this. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for all of your word, including the bits that are uncomfortable, and awful. Please be with us now so that you might be strengthening our faith in you and our commitment to your ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul uh, poetically says, he says this, the night is nearly over. The day is almost here. As Christians, he's saying, we live at dawn. We live at dawn. There's light on the horizon, but the world is still dark. Dark enough to stumble in. But God gives us such passages like this in Genesis 34, which are, they're like a flare in the darkness to warn us. To warn us from stumbling over such things as sexual abuse, and revenge, and to trust him and his ways instead. So that's where we're going today, (laughs) Uh, to see where to learn from Jacob and his son's mistakes uh, when it comes to sexual abuse and to revenge. So, firstly, learning from these guys' mistakes. In the story so far, God made a heap of promises to the guy named Abraham. Uh, He promised Abraham that he'd bless him and make his name great, that he'd make him into a great nation, that he'd give his descendants the promised land and that he'd bless the nations through him. And and those promises were passed down to his son, Isaac, which were then passed down to Isaac's son, Jacob. And and despite Jacob's treachery during uh, duping his father and his brother Esau and running away, God's nonetheless kept his end of the bargain. He, it, well, it wasn't a bargain, he just made promises, kept his promises. He makes Jacob's name great, he blesses him with wealth and children, he's becoming a, a nation. Indeed, as Jacob's faith uh, in God grows, as he wrestles with God and clings to him and to his promises in a great scene uh, in the, at the end of chapter 32, God changes his name to Israel which, amongst other things, is the name of the nation to come. And upon returning to the promised land, uh, 
with God saving him from his grumpy brother, we see Jacob is in something of a now and not yet situation. He's got God's blessings now, right? God's made him great. He's becoming a great nation. Uh, But the promised land, that's not his yet, right? God's promised it to him, promised it to his descendants, but Israel is a small nation without the land. And so you can see, when it comes to God and his promises, Jacob's in, in a now and a not yet in the situation. He, he's God's man, but living among people who don't know and don't care for God. And so he needs to be careful where and how he goes, uh, to be careful to trust God and to go where God wants him to. But he doesn't. Uh, God first appeared to him at Bethel, a place called Bethel, on the run from Esau, and Jacob promised at that place, that if God brought him home safely, that he'd set up a house to God there at Bethel. But after God brings him home safely, he doesn't go to Bethel to set up an altar to God there like he promised. He goes to Shechem, as we read uh, in chapter 33 earlier on. Uh, from verse 18, Jacob came from Padamaram, that's where he was, uh, hiding from, his, uh, from Esau with his uncle Laban, uh, and then he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan and camped within sight of the city. For a hundred pieces of silver he brought from the sons, bought from the sons of Hamor, uh, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent, and there he set up an altar. But he was meant to settle down and set up an altar to God at Bethel, not Shechem, which might explain why God is absent in from all that happens in Shechem in this chapter. Jacob doesn't seem to be wrestling with what God wants, with with God and what he wants at all. Uh, And the knock-on effect, it's just terrible. It's terrible for his family and for everyone else. And in this, he and his sons, there's something of an example of what not to do. Uh, You know, his office poster in Shechem should have been something like this, mistakes. It could be the purpose of your life is only to serve as a warning to others. So let's... Let's learn from Jacob and his sons as examples of what not to do because, believe it or not, we're actually in a similar situation. For those of us who are trusting in Jesus, we've got a heap of God's promises fulfilled in Jesus, haven't we? Uh, By trusting in Jesus, trusting that he died for our sins and rose from the dead to make things good between God and us, God has forgiven us completely. More than that, he's adopted us into his family now and forever, but, but it's like we're not home yet. We're waiting for the promised land, so to speak, for, for the time that Jesus returns and makes all things right and does away with all suffering and evil and death once and for all and wipes every tear from our eyes. But until then, while we wait, God's given us this story of Jacob and his sons to warn us and hopefully to save us, save us from more heartache and trouble, particularly when it comes to the areas of sexual abuse and vengeance. Which brings us to the second point. The rape of Dinah and sexual abuse. So, Jacob camps within the site of uh, the Canaanite city. Uh, this was clearly too much of a temptation for his teenage di- uh, daughter Dinah. She was probably around 14 or 15. Uh, so we read from chapter 34, verse 1. So now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, had, uh, had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. Which is not surprising. You can't move next door to Westfield and not expect your teenage daughter to want to go and hang out there. Uh, so Dinah goes into town. But the son of the ruler of that area, Shechem, uh, is there and he sees her and he takes her 
and he rapes her. Uh, it's a little bit like the first sin, you know, where Adam and Eve, they see the forbidden fruit, they take the fruit, and they eat the fruit. So Shechem consumes Dinah to satisfy his lust. But then staggeringly, <laughs> uh, we're told that he really loves her. Now, verse 3, his heart was drawn to Dinah, uh, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman. He spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl uh, as my wife. And this, his father is totally behind the idea. He goes to Jacob to start the arrangements with no sense that his son's done anything wrong. In fact, Shechem is the most honoured of all of his father's household. We'll see that in verse 19. His townsfolk hold him in high regard. In their eyes, Shechem's done nothing wrong. Uh, they might have even commended him for being wise in, uh, with Dinah and her family. He's done the whole try before you buy thing. He's liked the product and so he wants to buy it. And, and, and he makes extravagant, extravagant offers of money to get it, verse 12. And this is just normal. Normal for people at the time. This is just how love and life works. And in some ways, sadly, it's still a bit the same for our society. Not that rape is seen as acceptable, thank goodness, but but that sex and relationships are just very transactional. The whole try before you buy vibe is just so embedded in the way people think, right? Uh, in fact, to not try before you buy, uh, it's, that's seen as unwise. But it's, it's transactional thinking. It's to presume the person you're sexually trying out is up for sale, when in fact they're not. Their bodies belong firstly to God. And he says the best and only place for the expression of sexuality is within marriage, not before it. And so to engage in any sexual activity... Before marriage, in a sense, is to take what's not yours against God's will. And to do it violently against the other person's will, well, that's not just to rape them. In a sense, that's to rape God. Which is why the rape of Dinah is described not just as an outrageous thing, something that's morally despicable, but as something that defiles her. That is something that makes her unclean in a ritual sense, something done against God, which is why Jacob's lack of response is just so wrong. And you can feel the judgment of this uh, even in the Bible itself. From verse 5 we read, you know, when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until he came home. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields and as soon as they heard what had happened, they were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Rape is so bad, it's so appalling, it's so loud in its evil that it demands a loud response, which is why Jacob's passivity and his silence here is just as equally appalling. His sons, however, in their shock and their fury, they're spot on. That's, that's the very least response sexual abuse demands. But the society that we live in is just so confused over this. Because while on the one hand there's the Me Too movement, with many rightly, many rightly speaking out against the rape culture in our society with, with grief and fury, while at the same time, it's estimated 
that 90% of men and 60% of women consume porn, which has undeniable links to rape culture, which is concerning, uh, given that Aussie kids are first seeing porn now from the age of nine. Uh, Just over a year ago, the popular site Pornhub uh, was investigated for having a number of child pornography and rape videos on their sites. And so they purged for 9 million of their 13 million videos. But even then, of the videos that were left, it's been found that there's still sex trafficking in the making of some of them. So basically, uh, it's impossible to know if you sign up to Pornhub or to any other porn sites that you're not supporting sex trafficking and rape culture. And even if you're not signing up to a porn site... Uh, maybe you're just hopping onto YouTube or for a quick porn fix or watching sexually explicit TV shows for that soft porn hit or even getting into animated porn like hentai, which has a lot of cartoon rape in it. In some ways, that's, this is worse because as people get pleasure from this, they, they, they can dull their consciences by telling themselves, well, it's not really hurting anyone. Uh, it's just a consenting adult. It's just a cartoon. When in actual fact, they're, they're, they're buying in their mind into a culture of objectifying men and women as things that you try before you buy. And sadly, that's the gateway to rape culture. Where our society is just so confused over this, God's not. To him, the rape of Dinah is an outrageous thing. Elsewhere in scripture, the word translated outrageous thing when it's used, it's often accompanied with the death penalty. God hates sexual abuse. It's the kind of crime that screams for some kind of eternal punishment because it takes something that can never be given back. So if we've been complicit in that taking, just by watching porn, then please know this. Jesus suffered the kind of eternal punishment on that cross that our filthy behaviour and habits deserve precisely so that we wouldn't have to. And so as we own this and tell God and ask him to forgive us in Jesus, he will happily forgive us and has so that not only we might be forgiven but we might break old habits. Because while God hates sexual abuse and all sexual immorality, He not only gave Jesus to suffer the punishment for it in our place, he gives us his spirit to free us from being a slave to it. So if you're struggling with porn, please talk to God about it, own it before him, seek his forgiveness and his power in Jesus. And then please reach out to someone that you you trust so that you can can pray with you and, and help you out. You can even drop me a line if you like. And because 23% of women and 8% of men in Australia are victims of sexual abuse, it's important to say something to those who may have suffered sexual abuse. Please be assured Jesus stands with you. A Lutheran church in New York at one stage had on its sign a creative paraphrase of Jesus' words of Matthew 25, verse 40. Jesus said, As you have done it to them, 
you have done it to me too. Uh, this clearly underscores, I think, what Jesus is saying, that the way we treat one of Jesus' people, particularly the least of them, the weak, the vulnerable, the abused, the way we treat them is the way we treat Jesus. And so to be angry and supportive and to grieve with those who've suffered, that's to love Jesus. And for those who've suffered, please hear this from Jesus himself, that he suffered with you. Some even suggest that Jesus was a victim of sexual abuse himself. The the theologian, Elian Heath, who's a survivor of sexual abuse herself, says this, Being stripped publicly prior to his crucifixion was a calculated act of sexual violence. In Jesus' culture, as in Middle Eastern cultures today, to be stripped naked in front of a watching crowd was an act of sexual violation. The torture was sadistic, carried out while he was naked in order to minimise his humiliation in front of a voyeuristic crowd. A bit like Dinah then, in this story, Jesus was defiled, degraded and despoiled and yet no one would think less of him for his abuse which many who suffered sexual abuse have said that they feel, feel about themselves and feel from others that they're somehow less spoiled goods and that their loss is irreversible. But to know Jesus, the one who suffers such abuse and such shame and yet is faultless and blameless and good, I hope and I pray that knowing this may be a help to those who've suffered sexual abuse, a help to see themselves not as less, or shameful or despoiled, but as whole and clean and pure in God's eyes and as such expect to be seen the same way by other people, particularly other Christians, as they wait for Jesus to bring final, satisfying justice for the wrongs done to them. Which brings us to the uh, our last point, revenge and the vengeance of Jacob's sons. Or as one commentator put it, the rape of Shechem. Because while we commend the shock and the fury of Jacob's sons of their sister being raped, uh, there's no way their vengeance can be condoned. No way. Uh, even though we might have been taught to cheer in all our movies at the bloody demise of the baddies, especially at the hands of the hero vigilante, uh, there's something more than a little off with what Jacob's sons do here. Because as they deceive and scheme their way to the shameful slaughter of Shechem and his town, they're consumed with revenge. They're more interested in revenge than anything else, even more interested in that than their sister. Happy to let her stay hostage with Shechem while they hatch their plan, verse 17 there. And then there's the humiliating manner of their revenge. They they come down on Shechem and his men who in good faith with fresh circumcisions uh, to catch them with their pants down, so to speak. Uh, Verse 25. Uh, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their city, city sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all the women and children, taking as plunder everything in their houses. <laughs> this is this is warlike behaviour. They're like locusts. 
Uh, wave after wave of Jacob's sons descending upon this unsuspecting town to devastate it. First, Simeon and Levi kill every male, including Shechem and his dad, and then the rest of Jacob's sons plunder the dead bodies and then seize everything, animals and possessions, and take their women and their children captive. Any thought of righting the wrong of Dinah's rape, it's just eclipsed here, isn't it, by the insatiable greed for blood and possessions. Uh, Like Shechem sees and takes and rapes Dinah, so Jacob's sons see and take and rape the town of Shechem. It's just revenge, pure and simple. And it leaves nothing but a bad taste in the mouth and more mess. As Jacob complains to his sons, saying all they've done is brought him more trouble with the Canaanites. But he still says nothing about the outrageous evil done to his daughter, which is why I reckon we're left hanging with those final words of Jacob's sons. They replied, should he, Shechem, have treated our sister like a prostitute? Should he? It's a good question. Of course he shouldn't have. And certainly not have got away with it. But at what price? I mean, Jacob's silence is woefully inadequate. The sons of Jacob, their revenge is just insatiable greed. And so we're left to ponder, well, how can this wrong against Dinah be satisfactorily made right? Or any wrong like this? How can what is taken like this be given back? Certainly not with silence. Anger is a gift. A gift to move us to grief and outrage. But not with revenge either. As the Apostle Paul says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it's written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Why is it God's domain? To avenge and not ours? Because it's only him who can satisfactorily repay. As all-knowing, only he can see and know everything of what's gone into every evil act. Motives, circumstances, everything. And as all-powerful, only he can then perfectly repay with the punishment deserving of every evil act. As such, only he, only he, can administer true and satisfying justice, which he promises to. On that final day when he sends Jesus back to judge the living and the dead. But before then, take revenge to take revenge, it's to play God, and apart from the presumption, we just stuff it up and we make more of a mess. Because we're not God. To to not take revenge when something is done against us or against those that we love, then is to trust God. That at the end of the day, he's got it sorted. That Hitler, for instance, cannot slip off into oblivion by suiciding. That God will call him to account and judge him accordingly. That anyone who's abused, that, that who's been sexually abusive will be judged by God. And anyone who's abused us in big or small ways, will be judged by God. And that our anger at them is God's gift to us, a a gift to spur us at least into praying for them, even if 
if it's that God would punish them. Nonetheless, this is to trust that it, it, it's God's to avenge, not ours. So rather than take revenge, let's, let's pray first. Let's trust that it's God's to avenge, his to repay, ultimately on that final day. However, before that day, God's graciously put governing authorities in place to stop humanity spiralling into a chaos of abuse and revenge, uh, of being as bad as it could be. As the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except that which God has established. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The governing authorities are God's servants, his agents of wrath, to punish the wrongdoer. That means in the event of some outrageous wrong, like rape or any sexual abuse, in our righteous grief and fury at the injustice of it, God sanctioned wrath here and now, and it's through his agents of wrath, the governing authorities. In our furious desire for revenge, God's given us the right way to express it, by turning to the governing authorities, the police and the judicial system and the policy makers to see the wrongdoer punished. But as we do this, we need to understand the now and the not yet time that we're in, the day of God's perfect final judgment on all wrongdoing and evil. It's coming. But in the meantime, we live in the poor shadow of that final judgment in the governing authorities, authorities who are limited and often frustrated in their judgments. Authorities that by their very existence affirm and commend the rightness of punishment for wrongdoing, but at the same time point beyond themselves in their inadequacy to deliver true and satisfying justice. Authorities then that we should be praying for. And thank God for, as they see wrongdoers punished. But authorities that we shouldn't put our hope in for truly satisfying judgment and justice, because that can and will only be found in God. We're a little bit like Jacob and his household. We're in the the now and the not yet of God's promises. In Jesus, we're saved and yet to be saved. Forgiven, but not yet home. God's people amongst godless people. And as such, we need to learn what not to do from Jacob and his sons here, to not get sucked into the world's confused thinking on sex and sexual abuse, to grieve and be furious at such abuse, particularly in prayer, and to leave vengeance to the governing authorities while putting our hope in God's ultimate justice. And I'm going to pray that we do that. Let's pray. Almighty God, touch on heavy topics. We ask that you would minister to our hearts the hope, the sure hope that we can have in your supreme and satisfying justice, in Jesus, in his death on that cross, and in his promised return to judge the living and the dead. In the meantime, Father, as those who suffer even the abuse of sexual violence and the violence done to those that we love and a world that is just so confused, please grant us 
your wisdom, your strength, your grief, your righteous anger, but to leave vengeance to you and the servants that you have put in place in the governing authorities. Help us as those who live in the now and the not yet in these dark times to see that the the night is ending and the light, the day is coming and to hold fast to Jesus in and through these dark times while we wait for him to return and make all things right. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.